0: Just uh, one announcement, and then we'll get into page three of our series. Uh, At the end of this month, uh, August 26th, Friday evening, is our annual Mud Hens game. If you have not uh, put your name in for tickets, then do that before you leave. And you do that right over here at the table, uh, the Resource Center. Uh, If you don't have the money to pay for the tickets right now, that's okay, but give them your name, and they'll put you on the list, which obligates you to pay later, because we're going to buy a ticket for you or tickets, but do that today so we can uh, start to get a uh, a number of of who are going so we know how many tickets to purchase. That's uh, the 26th Friday night, uh, the uh, Toledo Mud Hens game. This is the third session in our series, the title of which is Behind Me, Pursuit of Happiness. It's on the front cover of your note, uh, and we're going to be looking at page three today, the bottom of page three. For the first two weeks of this series, I've started by issuing a warning and I do that again today. And the warning is that this is a very convicting series. If you listen and you take to heart what's being said, then it uh, can be very searching for all of us. And I include myself in that. So I want to issue that warning because for the first two weeks, it actually has been that way for me and for those of you that have been here. And uh, it will be that way today and for most of the the series. So I'm just warning you about that. Please be aware of that. But I also showed last week that being convicted and sometimes uh, feeling guilty is good for all of us because that shows us where we are. If it's not where we need to be, then it's motivation for us to make some changes. And the Bible talks about that a number of places. In James chapter 1, the Bible uh, speaks of itself, Scripture, as being like a mirror into which we look and we see the changes that need to be made. And then it says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. So it tells us that if we are to actually do the word, then we're going to look into the mirror of the word, see changes that need to be made, and actually look to implement those changes. Sometimes seeing what needs to be done is painful because often we should be further along than we are, all of us. And so that's convicting. And so I'm just letting you, you know about that. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 in your Bible, I noted last week, also talks about the value of conviction. It says that all scripture is given for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, those four things. And the second of those four things, rebuking, is actually the same word in your New Testament that's sometimes translated convicting. So it's saying the scriptures are given to teach us, and then when they teach us, they often convict us. But they don't just leave us there. Having convicted us, they tell us what we need to do to correct it and then to establish discipline patterns of right living in in our lives. So warning, this is convicting. It's the kind of thing where people say, Pastor, you've gone from preaching to meddling because it gets down to the nitty-gritty of how we order our lives around what it is that Jesus has called us to do. And those of you who may be guests then today, uh, I'm, not, I'm not always this, uh, it's not always this difficult. I'm not always this much of a pain in the neck. Yeah, pretty much I am, but... But this is, this series is uh, more convicting than the norm and so we're glad you're here and we hope you, and we do hope you come back and we're three weeks into the series and if you haven't been able to listen to the first two, all of our lessons are online at our website so I encourage you to do that. So this series has to do with how we order our lives in the pursuit of happiness. And there are two, there are a number of points that I've made in these first two weeks, but two that I want to uh, explicitly point out to you at the beginning of this session. One is that we do order our lives around what we think will make us happy. We all order our lives around the thing or things that we think will make us happy. So that's one. But secondly... If they're not ordered, if our lives are not ordered around what Jesus cares about, it's because we don't think Jesus can make us happy. So the first is we order our lives around the thing or things that we think will make us happy. And if our lives are not ordered then around the things that Jesus cares about, it's because we don't think he can do that, that he can make us happy. Now I dealt with that back on page two on page two up at the top, the question we sought to answer and, and I think did answer from the Bible is, "Can Jesus make me happy?" and he claims he can he 's God, he can do a lot of stuff he made you he made you to be happy he can provide that, but sin is us thinking we need it in something other than, and always less than, him. And so we think, we've bought the idea that Jesus cannot make us happy. That's why we order our lives around things other than those about which Jesus cares. So we always order our lives around the thing or things that we think will make us happy. And if our lives are not ordered around what Jesus cares about, it's because we don't think he can. He says he can. Romans 12 and verse 2. It's listed at the top of page 2 in your notes, but he says there, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. As you do that, you will be able to, last part of verse 2, you will be able to test and approve. That is, you'll be able to show, you'll be able to prove, manifest that God's will is these three things. It is good, and it's pleasing, and it's perfect doing what Jesus cares about and says you should care about, doing God's will, in other words, is a good thing, it's a pleasing thing, it's a perfect thing. So Jesus claims he can make us happy, but the way we order our our lives often reveals that we really don't don't think that. So let me ask you then, as part of this whole convicting thing, is your life ordered around what Jesus cares about. Just ask yourself that. I'm not going to ask for any personal testimony. Just ask yourself, before God, is my life ordered around what Jesus really cares about? And to make it all the more convicting, let's think about then some things Jesus cares about that I think we will all agree. The things that I'm going to list are definitely things Jesus cares about. And then I'll go down to a list, a list that maybe not. So would we all agree Jesus cares about the gospel? The good news? It's centered on Jesus. It's centered on who he is and what he did. He cares about that, doesn't he? So is my life centered on the gospel? Is it is it, is it ordered in a way to see the gospel not only continue to transform my life, but to be the seed of the gospel, to be sown into many other lives? Is my life ordered that way? Because Jesus cares about that, doesn't he? Does Jesus care about the Bible? And the gospel, you know, is, uh, saturates the Bible, but all of the Bible. Does he care about Scripture and all of its teaching? It's his word. And, and he, he cares about it in your life personally. That you're in it regularly. Imbibing in, drinking in what he teaches in the Bible. He cares about that. But he only cares about it for you personally. He cares that other people get taught the Bible. That they're able to come to places like this that teach the Bible and they're able to hear the Bible. Well, that means a whole bunch of stuff. (laughs) Have I ordered my life? Have you ordered your life around trying to make that happen, to have a place like this where people can be taught the Bible? You know, I mentioned in our first hour, so you're getting a double whammy if you were here for the first hour because we're in Ephesians 4 and it's about similar stuff. How we order our lives and use the gifts Christ has given us. And I said in the first hour, there are people right now as I speak. There were then and there are right now who have our children taking care of our children so that you can be taught. Well, the people who are doing that have caught the idea Jesus cares about people being taught the Bible and I'm going to help that happen. And so they're serving right now, helping that happen. Or we don't collect an offering in the second hour. We pass the hat during our first hour. And I always tell people who are guests, don't don't give. So those of you who are guests, I'm going to mention this, but just mention it and move on. But those of you who give money to, to fund the ministry of the church, you're helping the ministry of the Word go forward by virtue of doing that, right? So there are all sorts of things now that you can think about. If I really care about the Bible in my own life, I'll schedule time to read it Regularly. But if I care about the dissemination of the truth of the Bible into the lives of others, then I'll do what I can to make that possible. Jesus cares about the gospel. Jesus cares about the Bible. We all agree, right? Jesus cares about church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what the Bible says. The world hates the church. Jesus loves the church. It's his idea. It's his church. He's the head of it. He cares about it. And, and that means he cares about all the stuff that's necessary to make it happen. Do you know how much stuff is necessary to make it happen? <laughs> I listed some of it in our first hour. It just goes from the mundane to the, but there's just menial, I should say tasks that just have to be done in order for the church to function. Jesus cares about that. He cares about the fact that you're able to sit on chairs that somebody else set up. He cares about the fact that you're able to hear my voice right now because somebody came in and set up audio stuff. He cares about the fact that we're able to sing songs in our first hour from a screen because somebody came in early and set up video stuff. He cares about the fact that you're able to hear me without a screaming baby because somebody's taking care of the baby somewhere else. And those babies are learning at a very young age to love coming to church, which is a great thing as well because there are people there who love me and treat me that way. There are, there are people who are taking care of our children to teach them right now at age-graded levels so that they can understand the truth of God. And they've studied this week and they've prepared this week to do that. You guys just got finished having coffee and bagels. You know, why do we do that? We think think Jesus cares about his people talking to each other and mingling with each other. The Bible teaches that. So we try to make avenues for that to happen, and that's why we give you coffee and bagels. Besides that, I like it when you're not falling asleep. A cup of coffee helps that also. The people have to come in. A bunch of people have to come in and get all that sort of stuff done. All sorts of stuff. I could go on and on and on. Why? Because Jesus cares about church and all the stuff that makes church go. Now, am I right? He cares about that? He cares about relationships. And in particular, he cares about relationships in the church. How do I know that? Because 60 times, 60 times in your New Testament, the Greek word alelone is used. And that's a word, one word translated with two English words, one another. And over and over again in Scripture, we are told within the context of the church to love one another, pray for one another, accept one another, forgive one another, submit to one another, be patient with one another, on and on it goes, right? Jesus cares about that. That means you got to care about that. So that means you got to relate to people in the church. You've got to get to know them. Does Jesus care about his work going forward in other lands, or, in other words, missions? Of course. He says, I want you to go and make disciples of how many nations? All of them. He cares about missions. If Jesus cares about missions, then we should probably care about that. We should care about who our missionaries are. You know we have absolutely excellent missionaries. Do you know who they are? And where they are? And what they're doing and what they need? Jesus cares about the gospel and the Bible and the church and all that makes it go and relationships within His church and missions, and we could continue that list. We all agree that is non-controversial. So let me ask you: Does does Jesus care about this list of stuff? The stuff I just said is non-controversial. Does Jesus care about the tigers, especially compared to everything else I just listed? I like the Tigers. I like it that they're in first. I happen to know they're in first. There's a reason I know they're in first. I looked it up. But does Jesus really care? Or, you know, I'm not just picking on the Tigers. I'm not going to pick on the Red Wings because it happens to be my thing. I only preach on other people's sins. But fill in your favorite sports team. And how much does he care about it? Does Jesus care that much about how you look? I mentioned last week, you know, he cares a little bit. He doesn't want you to scare anybody. But did he he even care that much about how he looked? When he walked the earth? You know, the prophet Isaiah says there was nothing about his appearance that we should desire him. And you know, he was, was, he's God. He could have chosen to look any way he wanted to. Have you ever thought about that? So does Jesus care about you having the coolest house? He didn't care. He didn't have the coolest house. As a matter of fact, though he were rich, 2 Corinthians 9, for your sakes he became what? Poor, the Bible So how much does he care about how you look? I mean, we've got whole industries just devoted to you, you know. Now, you know, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says this, quote, bodily exercise profits little. He doesn't say a prophet's nothing. There are some of us who should take advantage of the little profit that it is. So I get that. I understand that. But there are some people who are virtually obsessed with that. They spend their time on that. Does Jesus care about your tan? I mean, I don't know how long it takes to cultivate a good tan, but I'm just saying... I mean, it seems like it might take like a long time. A lot of pretty much wasted time. Oh, hold up, Pastor. I read my Bible while I'm out there. And that's good. I'm glad. Does Jesus care about our hobbies? Do you know what hobbies are often called? Avocation. You ever heard that word? An avocation. Vocation comes from a Latin word vox, which we get voice from it. It means calling, your vocation, your calling. An avocation means not your calling. And that's why they're called that. They're things that are other than your calling. How how many Americans and how many American Christians are spending lots of time on avocation, things other than their calling? Do you think? Should I stop going down that list? Stuff Jesus cares about and stuff maybe Jesus doesn't care much about. Now, think about how much time you spend on which side of those lists. And you made decisions this past week to order your life around what you think will make you happy. And much of it for many of us was around stuff that Jesus really doesn't care about. Now, how much does Jesus care about it? That we get it straight, how much does he care? Look at page three in your notes. The middle of page three, I ask the question, will this be on the test? (laughs) Because most of us, when we're in school, that's the one question we care about. You can go blah, 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 prof, and teach. But what I really want to hear is what's going to be on the test. And, in fact, I have asked, and I've heard others ask, is this going to be on the test? Why? I have to pay attention then. so will the stuff we talked about be on the test? As a matter of fact, is there a test at all? Well, we're going to look and see. Before we leave today, we're going to answer that question. But as we answer that question, some of you may not know that in fact there's going to be a test because you have been taught, rightly, that when you come to Jesus Christ, Your eternal destiny is sealed. You're going to heaven. If you have come to Jesus Christ and you have received Him as your Savior and bowed before Him as your Lord, then the Bible teaches that your eternal destiny is secure. You're going to heaven. So if I already know I'm going to heaven, then there's no such thing as judgment for me. Because judgment many people think, is only about whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. Well, when you pass from this life to the next, either by rapture or death, I don't want you to be surprised when there's actually a judgment for you and for me. And so I want to tell you about that because the Bible teaches there are going to be two judgments. There's going to be the great white throne of judgment. And that will be for all of those who have not come to Jesus Christ. But then there is this other judgment for people that have. And that, as we're going to see, is to evaluate what you did with what I gave you. And that is called the judgment seat of Christ. And where do we find it in Scripture? Middle of page 3. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Notice who appears before the judgment seat. We. So that includes the person who wrote that verse. And the person who wrote the verse is Paul. Paul says, I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you to whom I'm writing, who are followers of Jesus, we to get, we are going to, all of us, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will give an account. Now what's that, what's that account based based on, well, I should have listed this in the quotation, but the verse right before the one I quoted, verse 10, in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, it says this, we may, I'm quoting, we make it our goal to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You see, I am going to give an account as to whether or not I please Jesus with my life. And so are you. And it's not an account that determines if you go to heaven or hell. That's already been determined. You're going to heaven if you've come to Jesus. But there's still going to be an accounting, a judgment. Even for those of us who have come to Christ. Now I'm guessing that there are some of you who just didn't know that. But the Bible teaches it very clearly. And further, in another passage that Paul wrote, he gives us some of the basis for that judgment determining whether or not we have pleased Jesus with our lives. And I have that listed for you on page 3 as well. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one of us should be careful how he builds for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he'll receive reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. It's a sobering thing to me. I'm going to stand before Jesus, who gave himself for me, who has gifted me, as we saw in our first hour, has gifted every one of us in various ways, and I'm going to stand before him and give an account. And my work and your work is going to be tested, tried. And there are different kinds of quality of work. He lists materials, six materials there. So what I'd like to do is to just bounce to bounce through this a bit. You know, I do uh, premarital counseling and I do marriage counseling with folks over the years. And I found that many people who are legally married still don't have a marriage. They just have an existence. That's a really sad thing, isn't it? We're married, but we don't have a marriage. We just have an existence. And I found that the same is true for life in general that people just muddle through life and they go from one phase to the next, never pursuing a compelling purpose that gives meaning to their lives. And so many people, and that includes professing Christian people, never go from simply existing to really living and living for their purpose. And friend, I bring that up because there is absolutely no valid reason for anyone who knows Jesus Christ has access to his word, there's no reason to live an aimless life. God's given us a cause, an objective, a mission, a purpose. And he's gifted every one of us who have come to Christ to be involved in the work that he's doing in his world. And what is that work that God has called us to? Jesus gave it in his final words before he departed. He said, this is what I have for you. I want you to go, and I want you to make disciples. Now, this is these are his final words. This is what he says. I want you to go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. Surely I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. And then Jesus leaves and He has founds of the church, and the church begins to carry that out, people collectively doing that. You want to know what you've been called to? That. You want to to know what you've not been called to? Anything that detracts from that. And he's going to check up and see how we did. We're on this earth for the purpose. So let let me expand that a bit then. We're on this earth for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Seeing people gathered together in churches where they can be trained for the work of ministry so that they in turn are equipped to proclaim Jesus further so believers are gathered together in new churches. Those are established and the work of Christ multiplies throughout the world. You want in a nutshell, that's your mission. That's our mission that we pursue together. And you've got a gift or gifts that help that move forward. The Bible tells us God's equipped every believer to participate in the mission. Now, let's take a look at what he says in Second Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 3, about this judgment seat of Christ and how we build upon the foundation of Jesus he cares enough about how we do with what he's told us to do that he's going to check. And we'll give an account. And further, he cares enough that he will destroy anyone who tries to harm it. Now, I'm saying that not because there's anybody here that I know of that's trying to harm it. But I just want you to know that he actually says, God actually says, I care enough about that mission. And the church that's central to that mission, that if anybody would try to do harm to the church, I'll destroy them. That's what he says. In 1 Corinthians 3, I've quoted for you on page 3, verses 10 through 15, but let me read for you the next two verses, verses 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Here's what it says. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Now, some of you have heard the passage three chapters later that says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You guys are familiar with that? 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20 says that. And so when it talks about the temple here, you may be thinking about you individually and your body. And if anybody does harm to you, God will harm, protect you by harming them. But in chapter 3, it's not talking about you individually. Chapter 6 is talking about you individually. Your body and my body, if we've come to Christ, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But in chapter 3, it's not talking about your individual body mind. my individual How do I know this? Because in Greek, unlike in English there are two different ways to spell singular you and plural you. In English, if I'm saying singular you, will you, talking to one person, go with me, that's spelled Y-O-U. And if I say to a group, will you listen to me, that's still spelled Y-O-U. Singular or plural. In Greek, they're spelled different. If it's talking about you singular, it's spelled one way, you plural, another way. And in chapter 3, it's you plural. And in the context, it is about the church at Corinth, who collectively now, comprised of the people that are the church at Corinth, are God's holy temple. And God says, it's sacred to me. And if anyone destroys it, I'll destroy; tries to harm it, I'll destroy him. That's how much God cares about his church. Now, the verses just before that, the six verses just before that, 10 through 15, tell us that God not only cares enough that he'll destroy somebody who does, tries to do harm to his church, he cares enough that he's going to check such that we give an account as to what we did as members of his church. So verse 10, if you look at page 3, says this. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. So here's what's being said. Paul writes this and he says, I laid the foundation for the church. Actually, the church that I'm writing to, the church in Corinth. How did he lay that foundation? He went there and preached the gospel. When did he go and do that? Acts chapter 18 in your Bible. If you read Acts chapter 18, Paul goes to Corinth. He was fearful for some reason. The Lord appeared to him, the Bible says, in Acts 18, and said to him, Paul, do not be afraid, but go ahead and preach. Here's why. I have many people in this city. That's what the Bible says. So he went to Corinth, he preached the gospel, people came to Jesus, and they were gathered into the church. So that's why Paul says, I have now, as a wise master builder, laid a foundation, and now someone else is building on the foundation that I laid. The word that he uses for uh, for wise builder is a Greek word, architecton. What English word do we get? Paul says, God has used me as the architect for this thing. I've laid the foundation, and now I've passed the baton on to someone else who is building on that. That someone turns out to be Apollos, and Apollos is preaching and building up this, this assembly as Paul now moves on to lay another foundation. For another church. So verse 10, it's according to the grace of God given to me. I was a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation, and now another is building, is building on it. And so Paul builds a foundation. There's ultimately only one ultimate foundation, that's Christ, he says in verse 11. And then I want you to look at verses 12 through 15. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. Two kinds of building material are mentioned. And they're to indicate those things, now get this, that are of lasting value. Notice the first three. They last. When they're tried by fire, they last. The last three... Are burned up there are different kinds of work that can be done some that have lasting value and some that do not if you really want to consider building a, a building then wood is far superior to gold in the building process but the focus in this passage is on the value of what's done and whether or not it'll be lasting and so we're told gold silver precious stones wood hay and straw and that's quite a contrast It's saying it now. Get this, friends. Some lives produce results that are valuable and lasting—gold, silver, precious stones. Other lives produce what's worthless and temporary—wood, hay, straw. Remember the two categories: stuff Jesus cares about, other stuff maybe he doesn't care much about. So, which one of those is gold, silver, and precious stones? Maybe the gospel. The Bible, his church, relationships in his church, missions. Maybe the wood, hay, and straw is the stuff Jesus really doesn't care much about but that we spend a lot of time on, talking about, spending money on, going to. And we're going to stand before Jesus. And Jesus is going to have us give an evaluation for how we used our time and our talent and our treasure. And for many of us, much of it is going to be wood, hay, and straw. There's a verse in Second Samuel that speaks to this issue of value. King David, after great sin and great judgment, determined to offer a sacrifice to God, he purchased the material for an offering to the Lord. And the man from whom he purchased it offered to give it free of charge to the king. I'll give it to you, and then you can go offer it to the Lord. So David's not going to have to pay anything for it. And David says this, Second Samuel 24 and verse 24. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. What's Jesus worth to you? What's Jesus' work worth to you? What are you willing for it to cost you? Because it's important to you. There are young people, young people in this room with young, healthy bodies, unlike old people like me with old and not so healthy bodies you guys could really really do great work for Jesus. On the other end of the spectrum there are retired people who have been given now by virtue of retirement time for Jesus that other people in other phases of life don't have. You can really do some damage for the kingdom, you know that? There are other of us, the others of you in providential circumstances such that you'll have more time if the Lord allows you to retire in the future than you have now. But you've got children and child obligations and so on, and those are godly obligations for you to fulfill. And so you sacrifice as you are able to serve the Lord in the phase that you are in. But every last one of us, whether we've got a lot of time that we're squandering or we don't have much time and we're trying to eke out some more, whatever the case, the standard is the same for all of us. What is Jesus worth to you? And what are you willing for it to cost you? You all have heard the phrase before, only one life and it'll soon be passed. What's the last part? Only one life, it will soon be passed. And only what is done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will last after you're gone. And only what's done for Christ will last when you stand before him. Now, dear friends, that is convicting stuff to me. And I believe, and in this I just, I I believe strongly. I have some biblical principle for believing it. I can't prove it, so I state that. But we'll not just be judged for what we did, but we'll also be judged for what we failed to do. Or to put it another way, there are sins of of commission and omission. You see, God has the ability to see what could have happened had we done. Doesn't he? Do you remember him saying to a couple of cities, he says, Woe to you, chorazon and Bethsaida. For if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the works that you have seen, the miracles that I have done in Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, would have repented, he says. How does he know that? He knows what would have happened. Jesus can tell what would have happened had I prioritized my life differently. Wow, what a convicting thing, that I I committed my life to things that are of lesser value, I will definitely be judged for those. Jesus may also show me what could have happened had I done other things. Now, why will Jesus do this? He's still going to let you go to heaven if you're saved. But why will he have you appear before the judgment seat of Christ? I believe one reason is that he is going to show us once again his grace to us. Despite what an idiot I am, God has been gracious, gracious to me and he is allowing me to spend eternity with him. The truth is I don't, I don't deserve it and neither do you. And I believe at the judgment seat we will be reminded one more time that that, that that's the case. But it will be a very profound lesson for most of us. Wouldn't you much prefer to be able to see Jesus smile and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I'm done, except this. Friends, we need to stop wasting our lives on junk. I said last week, this church can do some damage for the kingdom. God has allowed us to do that. He's got more for us to do. He's got people for us to reach. He's got lands for the gospel to go to that we can finance and send people to. We can do some damage for Jesus' kingdom, but we can't do it as He intends if we're playing around. And so I'm encouraging you to consider reordering your life around what's important to Jesus. And what's important to Jesus is his mission, the mission that he's given to us. Now, in our first hour, I was trying to find Ken Rapp. I found him. Somebody called him from breakfast at Ram's <laughs> Oh, it was Louis? Okay, good. No, he was here the whole time. Now, why do I point Ken out? Ken's the guy who takes care of people serving in our church. And as, as you make the decision to reorient your life and give up stuff that's, that's not as important, now I've got some time to do some things that are really important. And he's the guy who can help you do that. So let him know. Let him know today. Let him know this week. Better today, because you'll get caught up in the junk. I want to get in the game, like I said in the first hour, okay? All right, we'll continue our series about how we order our lives to pursue happiness next week. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, thank you for this convicting time for me, for us. We'll stand before the Lord Jesus, the one who gave himself for us, and give an account for what we did with what he gave. Lord, we, somehow we are, our values are so skewed that we think, oh no, I have to give things up now and serve Jesus. But truly serving the king really is giving up nothing to gain everything. And so help me to see it that way and help us to see it that way. We are chasing shadows and things that don't last. We are investing ourselves in things that ultimately don't matter. Help us to see that and thereby then willingly give ourselves to the Lord Jesus and the mission to which he has called us. I pray that every person in this room who names the name of Jesus will be willing to reorder his or her life around what's most important. And may you see fit to use this place, this this group of people, this church, as a light in darkness to show the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus such that people are willing to radically reorder their lives around what he cares about. When they see that, I pray that they will be drawn <laughs> to that light, and that we will see many come to Jesus and their lives built upon the foundation that he is. Help us, Lord, this afternoon as we think about these things. Pray about these things. Eliminate some things from our lives. Reorder them. I pray that some today will volunteer to to serve in your mission today who have been been misusing and abusing the gifts that you've provided. Lord, give us safety this week. Help us to glorify you in all that we do. And we pray that you'll bring us back again next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.